Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Duke Football Coverage Podcast, brought to you as always by Bull City Coordinators. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at our website, bullcitycoordinators.com. Follow us on Twitter at DukeFB Coverage. That is Foxtrot Bravo Coverage. Our DMs are open. Send us an email, bullcitycoordinators at gmail.com. It has been a while since our last interview. Uh, we have been busy here on on my end, a lot of work. We've had some COVID cancellations that we're going to maybe reschedule as a bonus episode later on once the season gets started, or perhaps what we'll do is uh, slot those guests in for season three. But we have a returning guest who is back for his third appearance on the podcast. He played offensive line at Duke from the 2016 to 2019 and his second interview is now the third most listened to in podcast history he is trailing only john latina and coach matt sims who is skyrocketing skyrocketing to the top with 69 total listens so far i think everybody wants to get an idea of what to expect from ecu as they play north carolina state early this season but our guest Returning for his third appearance here on the podcast is the one, the only, Lee Rodeo. How are you, sir? Ben, it's great to be back with you, man. I'm doing well, and I appreciate you having me back on. Um, one correction, I I, I I don't want to take away any glory or, or respect from the offensive line room. I was a long snapper. Um, so, uh, you know, I guess that technically is an offensive line position. We're all, we're all centers when it gets down to it. Uh, we we snapped we all snapped the ball just to varying uh, distances, but did want to put that on the record. I'll find a way to edit this at some point and and <laughs> dub in long snapper. But you did play offensive line in high school, though, right? I did. I did. I I, I still consider myself part of the offensive line fraternity because it takes it takes a special type of person to to make a career out of uh, blocking for other people. But so I was flattered when you said it. I just didn't want to take any undue uh, undue um, uh, respect because that's a that's a high bar to be a Duke offensive lineman. Once an O lineman, always an O lineman, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Well, uh, why don't, before we get into the Duke football season, why don't you tell us what you've been up to since you were last on the podcast? It's been about a year, I think, maybe a little bit more since you were last on. You've had a lot going on. Uh, you had uh, a, a friend of yours uh, need some help getting off of a jury panel for the Western District of Virginia here where I live. Would you just bring us up to speed with what's going on? Yes, yes. Um I, uh, I'm fixing to start my third year of law school, which is a sentence that I'm still not, uh, not incredibly okay with saying, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to, to have the end of law school in sight, but, uh, rearing its ugly head at the end of law school is that bar exam. Um, so it's a double-edged sword, uh, but I, I, I do say that all mostly in jest. I mean, I, it has been a, a, a wonderful experience. It's been challenging in all the right ways uh, as, a, as a student at uh, the law school of the school down the road, who shall remain nameless, but it wears that um, really not great shade of blue. Um, but as I tell people, I'm, I'm doing my best to get the best of both blues, uh, Duke, and, uh, Duke and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, 
but I've uh, been uh, completed an internship this year with an attorney in Durham, uh, Daniel Meyer, phenomenal guy. I don't think, you know, it, it would be hard to envision a better boss, um, just a really, really uh, great practitioner of the law who does things the right way. Um, I've also been working as a, uh, a remote um, intern and legal assistant with New Hanover County Board of Elections, which is down in Wilmington, getting my feet wet in some election law. Uh, I don't really want to pursue election law uh, from a career standpoint, but with my connection to politics and um, running campaigns, hopefully one day uh, having a campaign of my own for one office or another, I thought it would be nice to sort of... Um, satiate that interest in, uh, you know, have my two um, passions uh, align, I guess, and see see what the, the legal side of, of elections is like, and especially in the in the political climate that we have um, been immersed in in recent months and years. Uh, it's been very enlightening, very informational, and definitely a good experience. If this were a different theme podcast, we could talk about the independent state legislature theory, <laughs> which we all may learn about next Supreme Court term, but we don't have enough time to go into that. Uh, I, I don't have enough alcohol in my house to try to process what that could mean for our republic, but moving past it, 3L year, I've said it to you before, I'll say it again, keep your foot on the gas. Absolutely. Don't let up. Other people will take advantage of their mistakes. All right. Now, you mentioned getting ready for the bar exam. That is a miserable process, speaking from experience. But tell us, have you given any thought to where you may sit for the bar? What state? Um, North Carolina. Uh, I my ideal plan is to to practice in the state. Um, I don't have an uh, aversion to potentially going elsewhere um, where if, if life or work takes me elsewhere. Uh, but um, and then, you know, that with, with that comes with it, the necessity of pursuing certification and, you know, different jurisdictions. Uh, but North Carolina is the plan, just gonna, keeping it straightforward, not trying to do too much and um, at least for a little while, I, I do want to practice in the Raleigh-Durham legal community. Well, good deal. We hope that works out well, and I hope you do not go into the dark pit of sadness uh, and depression that I went into after taking the bar exam. I passed it, but I was, and I'll apologize again to my wife, I was in such a depressed, convinced I had failed state of mind that she actually called my parents and asked if I had ever acted like that before, which was very <laughs> abnormal to me. I'll tell you that, and I probably have told this story before, but I rolled my ankle something awful playing basketball the Thursday before the bar exam. And in Virginia, you have to wear a suit, but you fortunate to the bar exam, but fortunately you can wear, you have to wear soft soled shoes so you'd wear you know sneakers right tennis mm -hmm. shoes so that helped two-day bar exam then the next day my wife and I my wife who was pregnant at the time we went and sat through a closing on our on the home we were buying so that was a pretty not great three days all mm -hmm. right and so I I hope just you know ride it out do all the bar prep and 
come out of it with a better mindset than I did. Uh, you know, I, I've always been the type of person that, you know, some people have a lot of anxiety between the time you sit and the time you get your score. But I've always looked at it, as, you know, whether it was an exam in school, the LSAT, the SAT, whatever. That's the most blissful time because no matter what you do, the die's already been cast. So between the time you take the exam and the time that you know how you did on it, there you, you ain't got a care in the world. Yeah, we moved down, I think maybe a week later, rolled my ankle again while we were moving it. That was fantastic. <laughs> I just, you know, but it was 08. And so my wife was going up to Lexington uh, for work. She'd drive up to work every day. I'd go walk my dog. And what was happening during August of 2008, the Olympics. Yep. And what basketball team was playing basketball, the Redeem team. So I watched a ton of the Redeem team, got my mind off it. By the time I rolled into work in September, totally forgot about it. Son was born six weeks early. And as he keeps staying in the hospital and we're waiting for the bar exam results, I started to say, you know, I really better pass this test because <laughs> this hospital stay ain't cheap, man. So, uh, but I got over it real quick and and got back to normal. And uh, USA, USA, dream team, redeem team, 08, Coach K, thanks for pulling me through, guys. I appreciate it. There you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> Why don't we uh, switch gears uh, from the misery that is the bar exam and talk about what is hopefully going to be a, a good and an optimistic and a sign of things to come 2022 Duke football season. Why don't we begin with getting your thoughts on Coach Elko, the new staff and the new direction of Duke football? You know, I, I think and it was pretty readily apparent just based off of the introductory press conference, the, you know, so much of being a division one football coach these days is being an equally as effective politician, you know, selling the program, getting people to come to the games, um, you know, obviously recruiting that same spirit, but even more so in the era of NIL. Um, you know, I think he has done a phenomenal job so far. I think he has projected the kind of culture that ex is exactly what you want to project to, to entice um, young men to want to be a part of it. Uh, I think the excitement is just the right um, middle ground between lowballing the expectations and getting people way too excited um, and, you know, setting the bar so high that you can't help but fall short of it. Um, I think we are charting a very realistic, very promising course. And from the standpoint of the players, um, how I know I'm getting old is there's only one class left of guys that I played with, which is absolutely insane to think about. Um, but, you know, the you talk to them and, you know, just their outlook on, you know, life, saying their outlook on life puts a little bit more emphasis on, on the importance of football than football deserves, but their outlook on um, life within the Duke football program has changed. There's a happiness, there's an energy, there's a desire to want to perform for this coaching staff, who I think the players really feel has their best interest at heart. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. Um, and it really is gratifying because this class has been through the absolute ringer. Uh, you know, they went from a jump pass away from making a bowl game their freshman year to 
you know, two absolutely abysmal seasons. And I have to imagine 2020 would have been an abysmal season no matter what the record was. Yeah, I can't imagine. I think was it Alabama that won it that year and down in Florida? I don't I don't know that even they probably would have said they had a great time, you know, living in a hotel, you know, your life existing between point A, point B and point C and that being about it. Um, you know, there 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 are so many guys in that locker room who not only deserve this because of the work they put in, but deserve it because of the type of people they are, um, you know, and the. um controlled chaos of a coaching change I was fortunate enough not to have to endure it but just witnessing it from a you know a perspective of still knowing people that went through it and having friends and other teams um throughout division one football that have had to endure it it's not fun you know and it can be a very grueling and very hard some instances heartbreaking very not rewarding process but this class has stuck through it. You know, they have persevered. They've worked hard. Um, you know, their their presence in the weight room. I, I mean, you, you see these guys that you, you you see a guy for the first time in three or four months, and he looks like a completely different person in terms of how the kind of shape that they're getting them in. I mean, Coach Feely is doing a phenomenal job in the, strength, in the uh, weight room. So I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about the direction that Duke football is headed. Um, I, I think we have to be realistic again. I, I, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And I think we all have a pretty uh, fair understanding of the realities of first year coaching administrations in power five football. But I think, I think there's a lot of objectively speaking, I think there's a lot of things to be excited about for Duke football fans. Well, you were on a – you mentioned this, how bad kind of maybe the second half of 2019 through 2021 was for all these guys. And you were on a team that had a losing season in 2016 in large part almost exclusively due to injuries more than anything else. Then you were on two straight bowl teams and should have been a third in 2019, as, as you mentioned – Talk a little bit about what this team is going to need to do in order to turn things around. And when I say turn things around, we can talk about this in a little bit more detail later. I'm referring primarily from what I'm referring to is primarily getting back to where you're having a chance to win games. Yeah, and and that's another thing that comes back to um... – the importance of guys who've done it before. And I think that's a really big cultural hurdle that this team is going to have to overcome because, um, you know, I, first of all, shout out to uh, my guy, Jackson Hubbard. He came the year after me and he's still on the team six years later. Um, I think I, I, if I'm, he is the only uh, player left from the quick lane bowl team. Uh, and I think, there's maybe a handful of guys that played on the team um, that won the independence bowl against temple. And, you know, there is the, the importance of not even necessarily their performance on the field, but their presence in the locker room and in the, you know, zeitgeist of the team to use an insufferable um, uh, word, you know, the, 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 it means so much to any group of individuals and trying to accomplish a common goal in life and specifically sports 
to have people to say, you know, you can do you can do everything you can to win in the game of football. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't occur to anybody in the room that, hey, you know, we should win this. You know, if there's if there's nobody with with the intent on winning, you know, um, you can be the best. You, know, you can be the you know, the 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 best pedigree, you know, best prepared um, team in, in the game on any given day. But if it hasn't occurred to anyone to, you know, say, if we've got the ball at the end of the game, we have to step up and do this. You know, there's no reason to have, there's no reason to, to not think we can do this. You know, if, if you have to make a stop at the end of the game and there's no confidence in your defense saying, you know, why, why not us? Why, why can't we go out here and, and execute the way we've been prepared and win this game? You know, if if there isn't that winning attitude to put people over the line, you know, that's that that's the reason that those Duke teams under Coach Cut before they went that before they finally got over the hump in 2012, how many years did they lose to Carolina by a possession or less? You know, it 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 you're right there, you're right there, you're right there, but you have to have you know guys in the room that can say, "Damn it, let's get it done, let's take that last step." And I think that's the supreme importance of having these few guys left that have been there, do have rings to show for the work they put in. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the while the change in the program was painful, I think that in the long run, it'll be beneficial for the program that the languishing wasn't allowed to to go as far as it as far as it potentially could have, because you still have those guys in the room um that, that are putting pads on that have done it before they may not have been the guys but they were on teams that won they saw what it required you know and they can then turn around and and say this is what we have to look forward to if we put the necessary work in i think for a team to win there's a couple of things that have to occur one the players have to believe in themselves individually in their own ability two the players have to believe in one another and then the players have to believe in the staff and buy into the offensive, defensive, and kicking team schemes. But also, in addition to those things, what the team will need is depth. And I think that from talking to the folks that I've talked to who are on the team now, and for those of you who are on the team and listen to this podcast, I know some of you do. Thank you. All of you should, but that's an aside. Um, <laughs> They all, they, they all seem to have bought in to those three things, right? They all seem to have certainly bought into Coach Elko. He's selling the program well. I mean, he's followed my account right away on Twitter, obviously a very intelligent move. And he's also been on the Section 17 podcast, which I think was a great move on his part. Everybody seems to have bought into the staff, but my concern is the depth issue going into this season and that that could be a problem. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on those kind of four things that I laid out that a team needs to win and particularly applying it to this Duke team. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, with a coaching change comes a lot of inevitable departures, um, you know, and, 
there's just not a lot you can do in college football or college sports this day and age to mitigate that. But you have to, um, you know, you have to, you have to work with what you got. And part of implementing a new system is knowing what is too much, you know, like knowing the, the workload on guys who might not, who the backups behind them might not be as deep. So you need them to go a little bit longer. Um, you know, knowing uh, the mental strain on guys learning new schemes, uh, trying to absorb a new playbook on offense, um, learning, you know, really when, when you're getting new leadership, it's learning how to, on a human level, connect with your position coach. And so, you know, when there's, when you have depth issues, it's really incumbent upon the staff to, you know, meet the players where they are. Um, I think you'll see a little bit uh, guys like um, Jalen Stenson, uh, you know, guys that had to, had to play early. I think Graham Barton's another example, you know, when, when Jack went down a couple of years ago now, and he was sort of forced in before I think, you know, before I think the plan was for him to be, you know, he's going to be an anchor of the offensive line this year. Um, and it, uh, we'll see a little bit of the benefit of that, but I do think, especially on the defensive side, you know, the cupboard was essentially bare once you get past um, the, you know, the anchors on the defensive line, Shaka Hayward, um, you know, the, the defensive backfield is going to be a crapshoot. Um, and I think in terms of depth, that's where you're going to see the biggest problem because whereas there might be a, a, a healthy number of bodies, there's not a lot of playing experience back there. So I think it's especially incumbent on the coaching staff to know, you know, when you're relying on fewer guys, when you're relying on a core that's on the whole a little bit less experienced, you have to know what, you know, what buttons to push, which levers to pull, how to get the most out of the group that you have. And I think um, it'll be an interesting combination of, of, situations where I think depth will help us and experience will help us. Um, you know, you look at the running back room with Jordan Waters, Jalen Coleman, those are guys that have been grinding in, in behind the scenes for years now. I think they will be, you know, effective anchors. I think there's a couple of guys in the offensive line that'll be, um, you know, you're not going to have to worry about them in the scheme of things. I mean, I think we're going to have, I think we have the potential if we can get the ball to them to have one of the most gifted receiving cores in the ACC this year. Um, with Eli Pankle, uh, you know, Jalen, um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, it, it's going to be an interesting balance. And I think if played correctly, where our weaknesses can effectively cancel out, where our strengths can effectively cancel out our weaknesses, I think we could flirt with a bowl, bowl berth this year. Um, and it's one of those things where there's a few games on the schedule that could go either way close enough that if the ball bounces the wrong way, I think we could be, you know, three and nine. If the ball bounces the right way, I could think we could be six and six. But it's all just, it's going to come down to circumstance to a certain degree, and it's also going to come down to how well the staff can use what they have because, frankly, like I said, the cupboard is just absolutely bare in a couple instances. Well, I think one good way, if anybody on the staff is listening and they care about my opinion, which honestly, why would you? There's no reason to. But you can help your defense out 
by making the scheme a little bit simpler defensively and then run the ball on offense, use a huddle, stop going tempo the entire time where, and this is hearkening back to stuff that we saw towards the end of the Cutcliffe era, the defense was beat and they needed time and there we are running a hurry up. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think uh, a ground and pound attack on offense may really help out our defense. You know, and I think that's one really big upside of a, um, you know, the center of power being on the defensive side of the ball and having a defensive minded head coach. You know, I think one area that you've really seen the importance of blend in football sort of, you know, dissipate has been how offenses and defenses effectively complement each other. You know, and I think that's, I really have always thought that was one reason that those years that Oregon was so good um, and they were seemed like they were in the national championship every year, never could quite get over the hump. But one of the reasons that they never could, in my opinion, is they never could find the effective blend of defense and offense that complement each other. I think you're absolutely right. In recent years, um, I think we have been defensive reliant. But I, And I think we have lacked the capacity on offense to help the defense in whatever way possible. And, it, and that wasn't always the case. You know, my freshman year, we nearly beat – we had no business being in the game with Lamar Jackson, but we nearly beat Louisville in Louisville because we were so effective at using the offense to give the defense best, the best situations they could possibly be put in. Um, and I think that's one area that I, I would be very I, – I think Kevin Johns is going to have a fairly high-powered offense. You know, you don't come from, you know, the history that he has. You know, you think Memphis, you think offense. Um, you don't come from the background he comes from without, you know, there being a lot of, you know, run and gun and um, high score and high yardage uh, production. But I don't see – I don't see a defensive head coach allowing that to get to the point where it would jeopardize the blend necessary to have an effective um, performance on the field from the defensive standpoint. Go back and look at the pinstripe bowl game and you can see just how capable and effective of an offense coach Johns could put together and how it can keep <laughs> a team in a game till they miss a field goal. And coach Sims, they missed a field goal. I don't want to hear it. They missed. They missed a field goal. It's, you know, it, nah. They missed it. It wasn't. It, it it's. It wasn't even close. You know, it, it wasn't as if it went directly over the line. I mean, you, you look up. It's it's demonstrably out. And I, I don't fault Indiana because you know they ain't got a lot to fall back on in terms of football success. But snap, bringing the heat. All right. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we want to see from the team this season and here's what I'd like to see and again guys um I know I've been a little bit of a cold water guy lower the expectations guy and that's not I'm speaking to the players that's not because I have any I I I believe in you guys I know you guys are going to work hard I know you're going to put in the time and I know you're going to put in the effort so I'm not being critical of you guys or the staff when I say this but to build on a point Lee had made earlier and what we've talked about is it has been a brutal two and a half years for this football program 2020 2021 
about half of 2019 were brutal and we've gotten away from an ability to compete on a weekly basis since 2018. I want to see the team get back to that. The wins and losses are not as important to me. Obviously we all want them to win, but I want to see this team competitive again. And if we do that, I think that that's a successful season, regardless of the wins and losses, because it's going to take time to, to build this culture back and get it back to where uh, we're going to bowl games again. That would be a successful season for me, but what would a successful season for you be and uh, kind of what do you expect from the team this season? You know, I have, you know, there's the coach speak answer and then there's the human answer. You know, a, a successful season will be compete for an ACC championship and a chance to make the college football playoff. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of the growth that, that the, the program as a whole and the players as individuals go through, you know, I want to see a season that's full of games where nobody wearing Duke blue has any regrets of the performance that they left on the field. And, you know, I don't, from a football standpoint, I think that if that is achieved, I think that could look like a bowl berth. But I don't think it has to, because I think at the end of the day, you know, the 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 blood, sweat, tears, and toll that these guys have put in, what they deserve is to have a football season and for these seniors to have a conclusion of their football careers that they have absolutely no regrets. Um, uh, to speak of. And, and I think that is within their grasp. I think they have the apparatus around them. I think they have a collective relationship with their coaching staff that lends itself to the belief that the coaches have their best interest at heart. And, you know, the coaches recognize their effort and are going to reward them when they meet the standard that the coaches set. Um, and I think, I think this goes back to um, you know, this, this, the hurdles that are, that, that this program has to overcome in this year are not the same ones that the previous staff had to overcome. Um, and I don't say that to say that a change didn't need to be made. You know, I'm, I'm realistic enough of a person to, to, you know, say that we needed to, you know, we needed to do something different because what we were doing wasn't working. But, you know, when you look at this schedule, there are games where you can say that's a guaranteed win. You know, that's a luxury that Duke football has not always enjoyed. I don't say guaranteed win in the sense of you don't have to go out and compete. I'm saying we can look at our non-conference schedule and say we could realistically go 4-0 in non-conference. Um, and I think that outlook coming off of the coaching change and thinking about the continuity of the program, that's a luxury that we have not always enjoyed. And that's a luxury that we shouldn't underappreciate. And so we're going to have a lot of competitive games this year, in my opinion, in conference and out of conference. I think we're going to have realistically a handful of wins. And I think if you look at a few games in conference that are with programs that are also going through coaching changes, I think if the ball bounces a certain way, um, you know, I, I think we could very well walk out with a victory. And a lot of people are overlooking it this year, but 
Carol, the, the UNC football team is a paper tiger. You know, they, they, they have relied so heavily on Sam Howell, who I will say, I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal football player. You know, he's, he's, you know, nauseatingly fun to watch. He's creative. He's, he's a good athlete. And he, I think he represented his school well, but he has been holding together an apparatus that, you know, you can't have that many five-star recruits and not be competing for the ACC championship. And that's just simply not what they have been. That's not the standard that they have risen to. And so without Sam Howell, I think, especially with the juice that this staff has brought to Duke, I think this is a prime year to pick off Carolina um, and make up for the fact that we haven't even been competitive with him in the past two years. Yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe I don't I can't tell you what the outcome will be. I can't tell you what the score will be, but I genuinely believe we could go four and oh and non-conference. I think we'll beat Georgia Tech. And I think Virginia Tech, Virginia, and Carolina are six to or uh six to five and pick them. All right. Two two things from that. One, you mentioned Sam Howell. And you were kind enough to take some time to talk to a, a co-worker of mine who's on the staff about going to law school because she's considering applying to the school that you're at, which will remain nameless. <laughs> you, you sent a text that said that I was the kind of guy that would invite the least consequential player in the history of the ACC onto the podcast, to which I replied, <laughs> I didn't invite Sam Howell on. <laughs> Second, since Hey, and, and anybody playing on the Duke team, if this gets you uh, hit during the Carolina game, I'm sorry. All right. I'm stop. just going to apologize now. But you talked about schedule, so you can't back out of this now. We're going to do a win-loss projection. All right. I'm going to call out the games. You give me give me the hot – you're bringing fire today. So give, give me your takes on who's going to win. All, All right. right. Friday night, September 2, 7.30 p.m. Wallace Wade, Brooks Field at Wallace Wade, Temple visits. Who wins? You know, I think that's a really important game in terms of setting the tone um, because Temple is not a pushover program. They've got a lot of good athletes. They've got a, a winning culture, you know, and you can't overlook a school just because they're group of five, not power five. And I don't think – I think we're getting them at the perfect time because what more focused a time is there than the first game of a new administration? So I think it'll be a good game. I think it'll be a win. And I'm not just saying that because one of my best friends from high school played at Temple and he and I have a running wager whenever uh, Duke and Temple play. All right. Now we're going to go to Northwestern at Evanston, Illinois, Ryan Field. Who you got? I think we pull that out too. You know, I think Northwestern has had a good stretch, but I think that they're getting to the point where the carriage is going to turn it back into a pumpkin. I think that's a win. North Carolina A&T. I don't think it is a drastic thing to say that I think that'll be a win too. Uh, although I have all the respect in the world for the Aggies. Um, not supposed to say that as a Durham native because, you know, Eagle pride and that, that hasn't changed, but uh, you know, it's, it's hard to um, envision you know, a, a culture and a program in terms of everything working together, alumni, fan support, um, history, tradition, expectation than the North Carolina A&T football program. And I just, 
it's such a pleasure to encounter any aspect of their program, whether or not it's how they play, whether it's not, whether or not it's how they, you know, present themselves, whether or not it's the pride with which they represent HBCU football. I mean, just what a phenomenal um, winning and, you know, what a phenomenal culture of excellence they've cultivated. And it just, it's, it, it's so much fun to watch them play. And keep in mind, they really stuck it to the Blue Devils for about 30 minutes last season. Uh, and yep. thank God for halftime, because that was a frustratingly odd start to that game. All right. Kansas, game four. Yes, I think that will be a win, but I don't think it'll be a foregone conclusion. Um, I think Kansas, you know, this is, I think, the second year uh, under a new coach. Um, you know, their coach has Lance Leopold. Um, he, you know, he was, he came up in that Wisconsin Whitewater pipeline. Those years they had those great battles with Mount Union, the Division Three level. Um, I, if I, I think he came from Buffalo. And I, I, I might have that off, but, um, you know, he's a, he's a winner. And I think you can't have the resources that Kansas has as a major state school and as with the success they have in basketball, you know, the, the Kansas brand is a winning brand, just like how David Cutcliffe co-opted the Duke basketball brand to, to revamp how the world saw Duke football. You know, you can't exist like that without, um, without a certain amount of success. It's inevitable. So I think we'll win. I don't think it'll be a foregone conclusion um, because I think Kansas, they, I mean, there's nowhere to go but up. But, you know, the, the second year of these new administrations is especially dangerous. I mean, look at what um, uh, Matt Rule did in his second year at Baylor. Um, or, yeah. Well, for the Carolina Panther fans out there, we're not going to mention Matt Rule too much. <laughs> I'm a Steelers fan, so I have a certain level of immunity there. All right, we'll, we'll scratch that one. That Kansas game really worries me. That one scares me because it seemed like uh, they started really buying into their coach about middle part of last season and really started start uh, started to get to a point where they were playing a lot better. So that game really worries me now. Let's go into conference play with the University of Virginia on October 1st. So this one's tricky uh, because I think, you know, there's the with, – with the change there, I think there's the inevitable growing pains of a new head coach. Uh, but say what you will about Bronco Mendenhall – he left a lot of toys in the toy chest at, at Virginia. You know, they, they're not hurting for athleticism. Um, I, I think their quarterback's back. Is he not? Um, you yes. Know, I, I think it has the potential to be competitive, but unfortunately I don't think that we pull that one out uh, also because that's another one. It's been a long time since, since the, the boys in Duke blue have beat the boys in blue and orange. Um, and getting over that proverbial hump, uh, you know, that the, the, that's a real thing. You know, it seemed the, the mental aspect of it seems superficial from an outside perspective, but 
you know, it's been a long, long time. And I, I think, unfortunately, we will not come away with that one. All right. And I skipped one, so i got to fix my sheet here. But Georgia Tech. I, I'll, I think you got it right. I think, uh, isn't, isn't it Virginia, then Georgia Tech? Correct. Yeah. I wrote down when I was saying I skipped one, I had skipped the Georgia Tech game and went straight to the Carolina game. We're not overlooking the Yellow Jackets. That was just me trying to scroll and write at the same time. So give us uh, give us your thoughts on Georgia Tech. You know, I think that'll be a win. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, again, Georgia Tech, you know, one thing that, that Coach Collins has done is gets get as, you know, especially in the aftermath of a, a system as unique as what Paul Johnson ran, it takes a long, long time to, you know, restock the cupboard with athletes that can compete at the division one level, not in a double wing um, flex bone, I think is what Johnson called it. Um, offense. Um, he's recruited well, but at the end of the day, I just don't, I think there's been too much turnover in that program to have any kind of sustained success. And I think we come away with that one, even with it being in Georgia tech, that's, you know, not the most notorious home field advantage in the world. All right. So through six games, you have the blue devils at five and one. All right. Now we come home on October 15 for North Carolina. You know, I, I stand by what I said earlier, you know, this, I, I have not had much faith in North Carolina since Mac Brown has returned, you know, they, you know, they've got more five stars than the night sky, you know, they, they've got the brand, they've got the, you know, flashy Argyle, they've got the basketball player and the football uniforms, um, everything you can to, you can want to be a successful program on TikTok. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, they have been buoyed by overachievers at certain key positions and they, I, I don't see them having it this year. You know, I, they had a, I've never seen a team with a physically more imposing offensive line than they did last year and a, a more ineffectual offensive line in terms of executing on the field. You know, Sam Howell's a good player, but he couldn't throw off his back. That's why they struggled. You know, and they, they do have a, if I'm not mistaken, they do have a new defensive coordinator. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's going to be enough. I, I predict the Blue Devils pull that one out, especially because it's at home and especially because, you know, Wallace Wade is not the most juice-infused uh, stadium in the Power Five. But when the boys in baby blue come to town, we know how to put on a, a pretty good show. So I think the Blue Devils pull that one out and reach bowl eligibility. A lot of fire there. And if you're keeping track, Lee has us at a bowl game, bowl eligible through seven at six and one. And North Carolina does have a new defensive coordinator. It's the new old defensive coordinator, Gene Chiswick. So let's turn to the remaining five games. Miami. Boston College, Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Wake. 
So not to be a bad alumni, but in terms of being a real, realistic football analyst, I, I don't see a large upside at, at, against Miami. You know, they, they I think for the first time in a while, they have really I think they're going to have all the pieces clicking at the right time. Um, again, new coach, but I think there is a situation where they've got enough experience, enough athletes that, you know, the the negative side effects of that will be pretty effectively mitigated. Um, I think we lose to Miami. All right, Boston College. You know, again, this is one where I think our depth is really going to come into play and is going to be a really big hamstring because, you know, at the end of the day, the few certainties in life include death taxes and the fact that Boston College is going to play smash mouth football. You know, they're not flashy. They're not going to throw the ball around. They're going to put it on the ground and run at you against a, a behind a pretty, you know, healthy offensive line. And I think this is one of the areas that the struggles of our program and the respective schematic focuses of our program have left us sort of wanting. I think it's a big reason that we we struggle so much against Pitt because we get out physically, we know physicality wise, we get out competed, not for any lack of want to, but, you know, if you're a, you know, 270 pound defensive lineman, there's only so many times that 330 pound offensive lineman can hit you before it starts to wear on you. So I do not think that the Blue Devils will pull it out against Boston College. Virginia Tech. This is interesting um, because I think this is another program that is going through a transition sort of akin to what Duke is going through. I think athletically they probably started from a better point because compared to Duke, everyone starts from a better point. Um, but I think it's going to be really key on how their new staff can implement um, what it is that they want their program to look like. Uh, I think a, there's a lot of similarities there in that, especially, you know, our new coach is a defensive minded guy. Their new coach is a defensive minded guy, both who've had a lot of success at high levels. Um, I think the fact that we're not in lane stadium will work to our, in our favor. And, you know, I think that Virginia tech has a lot to figure out on both sides of the ball. Um, I think my Homer alumni, you know, my guys or, or nothing pick will be I see I can see Duke beating Virginia Tech and Wallace Wade uh, in November football. I see uh, I, I can see us competing at that, assuming we're healthy. All right, Pitt. Um, again, you know, talk about a program that can just ha just has it rolling. You know, they, they can reload. You know, they have a system, you know, no matter how individualistic you are as a player you know, you're going to be inserted in their system. And more often than not, they're good enough at finding ways to make you um, successful. So in spite of losing whatever the guy's name was uh, to USC, which, you know, at the end of the day, I think the punditry made more about that than the actual consequences will, will present themselves on the field. But I do not – I don't see us beating Pitt this year. All right. And closing out against Wake, what do you got? As, as much as it <clears throat> as much as it pains my uh, my Duke grad uh, Methodist heart to say, I just I just don't think we have the horses to beat the uh, the, the the Baptist boys from from Winston Salem this year. So uh, I as much as I would like to get them back, and another one of my uh, real real dear friends from from high school, uh, 
we all played in the same offensive line. One went to Temple, one went to Wake Forest uh, to play, and I ended up at Duke. So that that ties back into the Northern High School offensive line um, uh, college competition. But I don't think we pull out against Wake Forest this year. All right. So we get a bowl game. For those of you who are keeping track at home, Lee has us at seven and five. We win the first four, then lose to UVA, then beat Georgia Tech, North Carolina, losses to Miami and Boston College, followed by a win against Virginia Tech, and then two losses to close out the season, Pitt and Wake. That is one heck of a start to the Elko era, man. (laughs) Now, I I think – I, I, I will I will hedge my bets by saying I think there is a range. I think I can see us going anywhere from seven and five to five and seven. I don't think we will go winless in the conference. I think um, I think the the physical transformation that Coach Feely is affecting in the program in the weight room will pay off, and I think the um, the issues of physicality will will dissipate in coming years. And I think that will manifest itself in um, an end to our uh, conference woes that we've been experiencing. Even even when we were, were winning bowl games, you know, we still weren't doing a phenomenal job in conference. And I think that's something that's going to start to change. Well, I think that for Duke to have any chance this season, they're going to have to go at least three and one non-conference. But. 4-0 would make it a lot easier, and then you've got to beat – you just got to win two conference games at that point, somewhere between two and three. And you're looking at Georgia Tech, maybe Virginia Tech isn't quite settled in yet, although I like what those guys are doing. And, you know, Pitt's had a lot of turnover. I mean, they've got a lot of talent. They've got a lot of ability, but they lost a very good quarterback. They lost a very talented wide receiver. They've got a new offensive play caller. There's a lot there that if – to your point, the conditioning is good enough and the balance between offense and defense is there. Maybe Duke can steal one late, but a lot of things have to come together to make that work and for Duke to have a good season because you know the range could be anywhere between you know four wins and, and seven wins. None of those are outside the realm of possibility. It's all going to depend on a whole, whole lot of things that we're just going to have to watch. One of the most important ones is, of course, going to be health, which we hope the Blue Devils have a, a healthy, healthy and successful season. But why don't we get into your uh, final thoughts? Anything else you want to say? You've been on here before. You know, you get an open mic. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the important thing is uh, is for Duke fans to remember that no matter what happens, you know, these guys are not only human. Uh, most, a lot of them are very young humans. And when when you offer commentary and when you cheer on your team and when you, you know, I, I'm not someone who's so idealistic to say that you, you shouldn't, you know, express frustration. But remember, whether or not it's online, whether or not it's in person, you know, you're surrounded by people who may or may not be related to the player that just messed up on the field. You know, you, you, you're, you're yelling at a 19, 20 year old kid. You might be sitting next to his mom. Um, you know, when you're online. We everyone likes to say, you know, I block out all the noise, all this kind of stuff. But I still have screenshots of stuff I I I, um, I remember seeing said about my teammates when I was in school that I just couldn't conceive of 
either saying out loud or typing out and putting it where other human beings could see it. You know, these are these are real people, um, you know, these especially with NIL. I, actually, that's a great that's a, I think that's a good way to end it. You know, I, I've seen a lot of frustration with the culture that NIL has given rise to in terms of self-promotion, in terms of players for the first time acting in their own best interest or really being allowed to act in their own best interest. And I think people really need to remember, you know, how many years have these players been at the mercy of their programs, their coaches, whether or not their coach happened to like them, um, whether or not, you know, they managed to stay within the very thin, uh, unrealistic parameters of discipline that the NCAA sets out for its players that has nothing to do with the well-being of the players and everything to do with the NCAA's bottom line. Um, you know, Maurice Claret, Reggie Bush, you know, there's, there's, there's so many stories of players that in the grand scheme of things didn't do anything wrong from an objective standpoint, but have fallen prey to unrealistic expectations of anybody, let alone college athletes with the unique pressures they have to face. Is NIL perfect? Absolutely not. Is it too akin to the Wild West? It absolutely is. But part of the problem is the NCAA wouldn't loosen up on the reins. You know, if the NCAA had done anything towards, you know, recognizing the work that these athletes at any level put in and across any sport, then I, I have to imagine that the court system would have been more lenient um, in how they interpreted uh, the, you know, uncompensated labor aspects of the, of the, uh, the jurisprudence that led to the situation that we're in. But the NCAA and the powers that be would not let up, at, you know, in the well-being of the athletes. And I, I'm sorry, there is no athlete on any athletic team, Division One or otherwise, that should be struggling to make ends meet when the training table isn't open. And that's the reality that we were living in. You know, there should be absolutely no athlete who is devoting 30 plus hours a week of their lives to their sports that should that should go hungry that should have a hard time purchasing, you know, personal hygiene products that should have a hard time doing anything or, or should have a hard time dealing with things that could potentially take away from the, their studies or their competition on the field. But that's what you were seeing because the NCAA was so intransigent in taking care of athletes and making sure they had, you know, their, their rights were protected, their well-being after school was protected, especially if someone was injured. Um, and I think at the end of the day, where I fall on this is, you know, the athletes have benefited. And, the, and, and I'm going to be in favor of anything that benefits the athletes. And I think just like prohibition, you know, it, it, something that was instituted with, with, for all the right reasons, you know, you, you, you ban something, but all that does is force it underground. It doesn't stop it. So you ban benefits to athletes, you ban athletes um, <clears throat> being able to be compensated based off their name, image, and likeness. All that does is empower runners, it empowers agents, it empower, empowers nefarious actors who then prey on at-risk, you know, upcoming high school college, high school athletes and exploit them for their labor. And then it might not even pay off in the long run because there's no guarantee that these athletes could turn pro and make a profit off of the, of the labor they put in. So what this does is it brings out into the light 
it makes things uh, it, it makes the playing field a little bit more level between the the traditional power brokers uh school administration nca administration um the uh the marketing companies the the shoe companies it gives the athletes a seat at the table and at the end of the day that's a net positive in my opinion so i i think in addition to you know remembering uh, there certain needs to be a certain decorum and how fans interact with athletes at any level at any school remember when you think about you know how things have affected the game i see a lot of people saying well there's no loyalty to the school anymore and the thing that i ask those people is were you demanding loyalty from the school to the player before that and i and i think when we remember at the core of all this, that these athletes are young people who are going through a very um, stressful uh, transitional time in their lives. I think all this comes back into perspective a lot more uh, fairly. So that's what I, I feel like a broken record because I feel like I touch on that at least a little bit every time I'm on here, but I, I thought, I don't think it can be said enough, you know, remember at the end of the day, these are real people and all of our lives will be a lot better if we focus on the, on the positives and, uh, and not the negatives, putting people down, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, what better place to do that than a school like Duke, where you can, you can know a devoted fan can form relationships with athletes. You know, you, if you, if you come to enough stuff, you'll inevitably start to know people in the program. Um, you can form relationships with coaches, staffers, and it can really mean something uh, because, they're not anonymous faces running around the field. They're actually people who you, you've been able to watch and meet and cheer on and encourage. Um, you know, we've got something really good going at Duke and, I, and I'm so excited for what the future holds. Uh, and, and I'm so thankful that we have someone like uh, Nina to, to direct us in the future. And two quick thoughts on the points that you made on loyalty. Remember, the institution will never love you back. And in regard to players having the ability to do what is being done through the NIL, the way that I think about it is the players now get to do what the coaches have always been able to do. Amen. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with leveling the playing field. Yep. But Lee, thank you for coming on this evening. And for the listeners out there, we are headed into the football season, which means the podcast is going to go dormant for a bit as I head back over to BullCityCoordinators.com to do game previews and game recaps and probably some quarter season or mid-season reports. We'll see what happens. I just want to say to everybody who listens and everybody who goes to the site, thank you. It means a lot. And I also want to thank everybody who has come on for season two. Randy Cuthbert, Joey Finnison, Gunnar Holmberg, Jake Bobo. Anthony Nash, Dave Brown, Clarkston Hines, Perry Simmons, Trey Hornbuckle, George Perks, Eli Pankel, Carlos Ray, Porter Wilson, Dan Siegel, Matt Sims, my guy Jeff, and of course, Lee Rodeo. Thank you all for coming on. And thanks again to everybody who listens. We'll be back for season three, which will hopefully start after Duke wins a bowl game this season. <laughs> But until then, check us out at BullCityCoordinators.com. Go Duke. Go Duke.